<laughs> so, obviously, I don't do this but once a year. I'm like the Super Bowl, and uh, it happens once a year, and typically, you know, either it's like really good or it's really bad. So, um, like my sermons, that very well may be the case. Um, I have uh, excellent shoulders to prop me up, and the two other elders, uh, Matt and Rusty. Um, by the way, I am Greg. I typically lead worship, but uh, this Sunday I get to proclaim the word to you this morning, um, and I pray that uh, we just, on a side note, I, I just pray that we can understand fully the amount of work, the, the heartfelt uh, intensity that it takes to write a sermon every single week. It's, uh, it's, it's extremely hard, um, and, it, and, and God was trying my heart throughout the entire week, and, um, and, and he shall prosper. So I'd like to read from Isaiah 6. Our text today is Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 4, and it reads, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the thresholds shook, and at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, God, humble our hearts. God, I am not worthy to proclaim this word to these people today, but it is your word that has the power, not mine. It is your word that can change us, not my words. And God, I, I, I just ask that we get a glimpse of what Isaiah saw in the throne room, a glimpse of your glory, a glimpse of that beautiful jewel, your holiness. So God, be with us today. Help guide our hearts and help us to see you more clearly today than we saw you yesterday and continue to grow in holiness, in love, and in awe of just who you are. And God, we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who made this possible. Amen, amen. So, last week, if you remember, um, we talked, we were still in our Advent series, and Matt preached about peace and the holiness of God. So we're going to continue this today as it pertains to God and his holiness, and obviously our lack thereof. Our peace with God and one another is dependent upon our view of his holiness. How we don't live with peace, and peace is something that we often find unattainable. I had a discussion with my wife about the peace of God. We were sitting in the car, and we were driving. And I told her, there are times when I am challenged in my belief 
because I often find myself lacking in this peace, this peace that we talked about. We should have peace, but we don't find it. But God reminded me that, that peace is something that comes after war. Matt preached last week rightly saying that our peace between one another comes with stipulations. If you look at our worldly relationships, even our government relationships, you think of war, you think of like fights for land, you think of fights over different perspectives, and we are willing um, as a whole, a people, even to just kill others for the temporal. We're willing to kill others for the finite, the things that will expire, land, earth, possessions. I'm not saying that there is not a time when you should not defend or protect or even use force to care for the helpless. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, what about fighting for the spiritual? We can make the connection between what is physical but not spiritual. We don't realize that we need peace because we don't realize that we're at war. We are in a war, and battle after battle, the enemy seeks to destroy. He seeks to devour. He is cunning that he will even make you think that you are okay until you find yourself terrified at the end, left with nothing. We don't see or realize the war, what is being waged on our souls. We don't realize there is a war because we don't understand that God is a holy God. He's a holy God that commands holiness from his people. We can't have peace or see the war because we don't realize that anything shy of holiness is in opposition to God because he is holy. Believer, non-believer, skeptic, lost, doesn't matter where you fall in this line. If you are human, there is a war. This war is a holy war, one for the pursuit of holiness and to proclaim the glories of our God or to proclaim your glories. So what does it mean to be holy? What is holy Well, to be holy means to be set apart for a specific purpose. We see this in the Old Testament, uh, the different altars that were set apart for different holy reasons because they are separate. That is what they are. Uh, Israel is a holy nation because they were separated, right? So, how is your life being set apart for the purpose of building his kingdom? Because if we are called to be holy, we are called to be set apart, and that purpose is for building his kingdom. And do you wonder and do you behold the majesty of our God? Do you enjoy the riches of his holiness? Or do you try to raise yourself above, unknowingly or even knowingly, to set yourself above? Above him, above other people. When was the last time that we, me, you, truly trembled before the throne of God? Like Isaiah did. Do we see the regality, the amazement of his glory? When we have tasted, when have we tasted the sweetness of his holiness? 
Have you tasted it? The sweetness of his holiness. Holiness is the most beautiful, sparkling jewel to behold in God's crown. It is a jewel of consummate perfection and total glory. For us to be at peace with God, we must be holy. His holiness encompasses all other aspects of his character. For example, God cannot be perfectly sovereign, he cannot be perfectly good, he cannot be perfectly loving if he was not perfectly holy. His holiness is the influencing trait that God possesses that influences all other aspects of his character. But instead, what do we do? We create a God that doesn't expect us to be stewards, stewardship, stewarding of time, stewarding of our money, stewarding of emotions. With our time, I would like to ask the question, what do we spend most of our time doing? We don't steward our time well. We often waste it. Money. How do you spend your money? What do you spend it on? Not saying money's bad. Not saying that you shouldn't be spending your money on good things, but what are you spending your money on that maybe you shouldn't? Emotions. We give our hearts over, and me particularly, to other people. We, we seek out things. We, we seek out comfort. And we try to orchestrate our lives just to reflect these idols and pursue them. Oftentimes, uh, you know, I have, I have family members. And when things don't go how they want them to go, they get emotional. And they'll even try to orchestrate things to get what they want. That's how emotions can control us. And do we submit? Do we submit to him? Do we submit to his elders? Do we submit to our spouses? Do we submit to the body, the body of Christ? To him, what is the God of the Bible commanding you to do that you are not doing in this moment? To our elders, are you able to see the role of elder as an authority in your life? I have many, many instances of where God displayed his holiness to me through my elders, Matt and Rusty. God was able to humble my heart enough to take heed to what they were saying to steer me away from total disaster. Your spouse, wives, are you submitting to your husbands? Husbands, your charge, are you submitting yourself to Christ? Are you seeing the image of Christ in your spouse? And are you willing to throw away your preferences to die to yourself and love your bride? The body, the God that we create. When was the last time that you were encouraged or rebuked by the body? When was the last time that there was somebody in his church that came to you and said, hey, I see this. This, is, this could be disastrous. You need to turn. No, we don't, we don't do that. Oftentimes because we want to create our own God and we often only seek things that want to help us 
personally and selfishly. Um, I have an example of this. Matt rebuked my parenting the other, the other week. It was pretty awesome. We were in an elder meeting and, um, you know, kind of lifted up. It feels heavy in here, but it's supposed to be. So he rebuked me. We were in, a, in an elder meeting, okay? And then my daughter comes in and, and I tell her, I said, hey, uh, would you like to go downstairs? Because we're having a meeting up here, right? Well, what's wrong with that, right? And then the prick came, right? Because we're all like that, uh, that very, you know, like we don't like being told what we think we're doing right, but it's actually wrong, right? And, and so in that moment, I was not being the father that I should have been. And Matt was able to expose that in me. And that's the body being able to take something, maybe even subtle, and expose it and show me God's holiness in that moment instead of my perceived holiness. Do you see this as loving when people do that to you? To be honest, in that like two seconds, no, I didn't see it as loving. But then I did, right? Like how, how long does it take for you to get over that hump? Right? Who are you trusting in? Do you see a proclamation of God's holiness being poured into your life when other people come to help you? Or do you get that? Don't touch that. Do you see this as for your good and for his glory? We also need to know God through reading our Bibles. Is this more than an act for you? Is it just something you do or do and wish we would do more? We often want to put stipulations on Scripture. We want to say, well, my God would never, or my God would fill in the blank. And I will definitely say nine out of ten times, whatever you say after is what you truly worship and will ultimately be heresy. Nine out of ten times. I'm not saying that, you know, there's a one, you know, 10% chance. But I am saying that, well, my God would never fill in the blank. That's what you worship, and it's probably heresy. Uh, and are you known by other people? Uh, do we know people? Are we known by people? We often create a God in our minds that condones our sinful desires, so we will often run away from the people who are displaying the holiness of the true God. We claim God as Lord, but we are not in love with God. We are ultimately in love with the mirror. The gods we create can have no place before a holy God, a truly holy God, the one true God. The holiness of God is not one attribute of God, but influences all of his other attributes. In the book, Look and Live, which is Russie's favorite book and makes my top 10, um, Matt Papa writes about our idolatry and the gods we create, and then also the holiness of God. So this is what happens to our souls in all idolatry. Matt Papa says this. He says, we keep adding more of ourselves to something, and some, the something is not God. We throw our souls at 
the thing, and we get some measure of thrill from it. But the next time, in order to get the same thrill, we have to throw more of ourselves into it. We need more money, we need more sex, we need more applause. The returns on this investment is diminishing. We put more in than what we get out. And he continues, we were made for the holy. We were made for the beyond. Our soul's attention is like 1,000 laborers that needs a task, that crave a task. And the task we were made for is so much more infinite than we can imagine. To scale the mountain of his holiness every day and to sing joy upon every peak. My friends, there is no end to the amount of holiness that God has. To see our God as holy, we need to see him as he is, how he is revealed in his word. We need to see him as king. We need to see him as authority. We need to see the majesty and the royalty of God. We need the majesty and the royalty of God. It is inconceivable. Verse 1, it says, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So King Isaiah, Uzziah, what's the significance of this statement? Why would Isaiah want to put like, hey, in the year that King Uzziah died, well, some people think, you know, they speculate, but they say that it was during the 8th century BC when this was happening, and it corresponded to the beginning of Rome. Good thing, but if we look in our Bibles and we go to the second book of Chronicles to learn about Uzziah, this is what we find out. He came to the throne at age 16 and reigned for 52 years. He had many accomplishments on the battlefield. He brought prosperity to the land of Israel. He did what was right in the face of the Lord. He was upright. He got he was one of the handful of really good kings in Israel, like of four. And he got so puffed up with his authority, he decided that, hey, God has given me all of this. He's given me this kingdom. He's given, me, given us this prosperity. He's made me victorious in wars and all these things. And then he decides, he's like, I'm going to enter into the temple and I am going to offer an incense offering. Well, as we know, like, to offer an offering in the temple, you had to be a priest, right? You had to be set apart, holy, for that specific purpose. King Uzziah was so puffed up that he went on, and he decided that he would give the offering. And God struck him with leprosy. This leprosy encompassed all of him that he would not be able to worship in the temple for the rest of his life. He could not be king anymore, and he was sent to solitary confinement until he died. The phrase, the year that King Uzziah died, was the end of an era. This is what was happening. 
Let's break it down. A man with much accomplishment. He was one of the handful of good kings we see in Scripture. God equipped him. He brought peace and prosperity to his people, but now prideful. He was puffed up with what he has accomplished, forgetting that it was not him who did it, but it was God. And then he disregards. He does not heed his earthly spiritual authority in the ones that God has set apart for this purpose. The priest, he purposefully disobeys and forgets who God is. He created his own God. He forgets the holiness of God and flippantly enters into the Holy of Holies to offer incense, something a king should never do. Now the holiness of God crushes him. Once heroic, he is now tragically reduced to nothing and dies alone and far off. The throne of Uzziah is empty. But there is no earthly person to fill it. What we see from this vision that Isaiah has is that the earthly throne is not empty. God is seated and reigning, high and lifted up. He says, I saw the Lord on the throne. The God who is holy is the God who is sovereign. The train of his robe fills the entire temple. What's this even mean? The loftiness of a king was determined by his garment. So how big the train was of the garment was how more glorious or how more sovereign that king was. It was like a a statement. So like we've seen something kind of like this, like on our wedding days, right? The bride walks down looking beautiful, regal, and has a giant train. And, you know, you have all the people, you know, holding the train up. But that just, you know, just covers a little area. Um, To break it down maybe even further, something that hits a little bit home, more home for me, I just graduated um, you know, I got my master's degree, and so, like, when you get your undergraduate degree, you, you wear just, like, a little robe. When you get your graduate degree, you get, like, a, a sweet little hood that you can wear around. And then when you get your Ph.D., oh, it's super fancy. Like, they even have felt, like, on the arms and stuff, and they get to wear these little beanie caps. And what's that do? It shows the regality. It shows like the amount of accomplishment. And God's accomplishment fills an entire room. Like the hem in some translations is so high, is so much that it fills the room. This is how regal, this is how kingly God is. Like you can't even fathom how amazing this is. God's train encompassed the entirety of the sanctuary. It filled the entire temple. So how is it that we, like Uzziah, forget the inconceivable holiness of God and proceed to simply walk about his temple, assuming that we are good? When we see this amazing display of his kingship, what makes us want to be like Uzziah and walk about in his temple? Do you really think that you're good? Do you think that you're holy? If you think that you are, then you probably suffer from high self-esteem. I know that's a a bad word. I'm a teacher too, and so we talk about self-esteem all the time, and I think it's 
a little bit malarkey because what self-esteem really is, is pride. You have an inflated view of yourself and a lower view of God and other people. We like to compare sizes of our robes, right? So like, kind of, we like to like, hey, look at my robe. Look, I got a master's degree. Oh, look how big my robe is. Or, oh, well, your robe isn't quite as big. I mean, you, you just, you know, have a family of like 18 kids, you know, but, you know, we see different robes, like, and we like to compare our robes, right? We compare the sizes of our robes. Facebook, okay, this is where I see it the most. We only show the, like, uh, Facebook, you never post, like, an ugly bedhead picture, right? You're always posting like yourself, like sipping a martini next to the, you know, shore and life is just grand and beautiful and nobody ever sees like the slummy things, right, of your life, right? How big's a robe we're trying to make? Look at the robe. Look how regal, look how authoritative I am of my life. We compare our accomplishments to one another. We compare family vacations, life statuses. And the seemingly amazing accomplishments that we have in this world, some good, build the lengths of the trains of our robe. The longer the train of our robe, the shorter his, God's, appears to us. When this happens, we will satisfy the lust of ourselves and look in the mirror and see none more holy than ourselves, and we will be prideful and forsake our God. Pride is one of the most devious of all snares that Satan and his minions use. Think about it like this. Like Isaiah, we get one ounce of accomplishment, and our dirty heart does the rest. We don't even have to try. Oh, I got that. Then our heart takes over. And then we want to pursue this more. We want to pursue the selfishness. It's like a cartoon snowball, like, you know, Wile E. Coyote in the, in the, what is it, Roadrunner, right? So he has a small little ball. He's at the top of the hill. What's he have to do? He just has to push it just a little bit. And he takes that one step, and it goes into a big snowball, and then it ultimately is made by Acme and destroys him. So... This passage in Isaiah reminds us that we are nothing compared to God. His regality is so huge. His amazing kingship is so big that he owes us nothing. Our robes, as big as we want to make them, cannot compare to God. We are basically, we think that we are basically nice folks with tendencies to mess up. And in reality, we are just proud. We are arrogant, self-centered, perverse, cruel, violent, Rebels, all of them, whom the stain of sin and sinfulness goes down to the last piece of us. Okay. We don't just mess up. We consciously and unconsciously miss the target God set for us. So we no more have the right to God's love then, as a commentator says, a bale of hay has the right to line in a, bla- uh, uh, a right to go in a blast furnace. <laughs> there is a strong likelihood that until we come to an understanding of ourselves like this, we will treat the holiness of God, His unfailing, undeserved love, as an item we can just toss away. The royalty of God, 
is inconceivable and unending, and we need to quit comparing the train of our robes and see him as holy. And as the seraphim are proclaiming in the throne room of Isaiah, they said, God is holy, holy, holy. So God's not just holy. God's not holy, holy. God is holy, holy, holy. Three times holy. They called to one another. They said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory. So who says holy three times? Like, do you just walk around and say, like, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going? Like, do, like why, do we, why do we even say holy three times? What do we do when we want to emphasize something, like, in writing? We, like, underline it, italicize it, right? Put an exclamation point right after it. Okay, maybe something more recent hits home. Every, every, raise your hands if you watch TBS, A Christmas Story. Okay, I'm the only sinner in the room. Okay, so Christmas story. So he's like, uh, uh, I dare you to lick the pole, right? I double dog dare you to lick the pole. Oh no, he skipped. And then he goes, I triple dog dare you. Oh, he skipped triple dare. He went to triple dog dare to lick the pole. You can't get out. You can't get out of a triple dog dare. So what's that say? Like, emphasis. <laughs> Long story short, um, repetition is used a lot throughout Scripture to create emphasis, this, and this is done throughout the Old Testament. A uh, humorous one um, is Gen- Genesis 14, the Valley of Sid- Stidham. Uh, it mentions men who fell into the great tar pits. It's also been translated into other versions of the Bible as asphalt pits or simply just pits, but the Hebrew is unclear as to exactly what kind of pit it is. It just literally is translated pit, 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 pit. So you had pits and then you had pit pits. Jesus does this a lot of times and he says, truly, truly, to create emphasis. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, it's just uh, in the Greek is amen, amen, and then I say to you, um, so there are a handful of occasions in the Bible that where something is repeated to the third degree. There are a lot of instances where it's repeated to the second degree, two times, but to the third degree, there's only a handful of occasions. And when this is done, it is meant to elevate it above all things that, and attach emphasis of the super importance of it. So it's not holy. It's not holy, holy. It's holy, holy, holy. Only once in Scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. There is only one example of a characteristic of God that is mentioned three times in succession, and you won't believe it. It's what we just read. God is holy, holy, holy. He is never described as mercy, mercy, mercy. He is never described as sovereign, sovereign, sovereign. He is never described as grace, grace, grace. He is not described anything three times, but holy. The whole earth is full of your glory. The emphasis of his holiness, the highness of his holiness, it influences all of the character of God which goes back to 
what I previously said was holiness. He has to be perfect in holiness for him to be perfect in his grace, to be perfect in his love, to be perfect in his sovereignty. The very foundations in this moment as the seraphim are proclaiming the glories of God shook. The walls trembled. The smoke filled the throne room. And just to interject here, um, would anybody be bored in church if that happened? Like, all of a sudden, like, the earth shakes and, like, things are coming at you and, like, smoke's filling the room and you see this giant being with this huge robe and it's filling everything. Would you guys be bored? Would you be bored? No, I, I, I don't think I'd be bored. Um, I, I think I would be pretty scared. But I think, I, you know, I've talked to a lot of people, you know, saying that one of the reasons they don't go to church is because it's boring. Probably it's when I'm preaching. But, you know, it could be other people because it's not just me. But um, they say church is boring. It's difficult for people to find uh, worship as a thrilling experience, as, as a moving experience. Why? How is it? Why is that? I don't want to, like, we see here, like, we see God appearing in the temple and the doors, the things were moved. Inanimate objects made of wood and metal, they can't speak, they don't have souls, yet they have the good sense to be moved by the presence of God. Why do inanimate objects have the sense to tremble at the presence of God and we don't? Many of us go to church every Sunday and we hear God's word proclaimed to us every single Sunday and we're not moved. We come into the presence of his holy word and feel nothing. A lot of times, we don't understand the holiness of God. We should be reduced to trembling with but one glimpse of God, with one glimpse of his holiness, of his majesty, of his regality. But often, we don't think we need to be holy, and we don't see the regal splendor that is our God of the universe. He's the creator of all things. We were created for this. We were made to worship him as a creature. We were made for more. We need to see that. We need to see that God's created beings were to recognize and proclaim his holiness. God's created beings were to recognize and proclaim his holiness. Above him stood the seraphim. So we're going up a a couple things. Uh, above him sto stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. So what is a seraphim, right? Uh, obviously, it's a winged creature created by God. God created this heavenly being. The seraphim are not sinful humans. They are not burdened with impure hearts, yet as angelic beings, they are still creatures. They were created even in their lofty status as these heavenly hosts, it is necessary for them to have these wings. So why would God create them with wings to cover their face, cover their feet, and then just to fly around? Well, I did a little research, and I will tell you. Um, covering their face. So 
they were fearfully and wonderfully made just like everyone in this room, okay? And they were equipped by the Creator with a special pair of wings to cover their face. In God's majestic presence, they had wings to cover their face. They cannot see the face of God, right? So they cover their face. Uh, Moses is told this, what, when he's on the mountain, right? And he's like, God, can I see your face? And he's like, no, you can only see my back because to see my face is to die. It's kind of amazing that God created a heavenly being with wings to cover his eyes. But it really shouldn't, like, make us, like, that, like, crazy about it because God did this with us and he did this with creatures. Like birds, for example, he created birds with wings. He created their bones to be hollow. He, create, he gave them feathers so they could fly. He gave fish gills and scales to survive in the water. Why would he not create a being to be in his holy presence to shield his eyes lest he die? We are, you know, the animals he's created, they're a function of their habitat. And to be in the presence of God, two wings to cover their eyes is a necessity. The problem is not with the eyes, with us. The problem is with the soul. To see God, pure, to see God, you need to be pure in heart. And we go to the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 8, and he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. We are not pure in heart, so we cannot see God's face. 1 John 3, 2, we are children of God, And what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We will see him face to face, but not until we are perfected. And R.C. Sproul says this better um, than I do in his book, The Holiness of God. He says, none of us in this world is pure of heart. It is our impurity that prevents us from seeing God. The problem is not with our eyes, it is with our hearts. Only after we are purified and totally sanctified in heaven will we have the capacity to gaze upon him face to face. So then we have the feet. So God made the seraphim with what wings for eyes and wings for feet and wings to fly around. So we get to the feet. Uh, Feet are typically a symbol of creatureliness. I made up that word. Created creatures have feet. We see Moses at the burning bush when uh, he goes to God, and he says, Take off your sandals, for this is holy ground. The ground was made holy by the very presence of God. Your feet are a symbol that you are dust and of the earth. The seraphim are still creatures. So flying. Um, Seraphim like to fly around the throne room. And that's the flying. Um, and they get to proclaim the holiness of God and serve God in that way. So it's foolish for us to think that we can somehow serve God, like the seraphim, until we have come to the end of ourselves. As long as we think that somehow created beings can find the solutions to our problems, there is little change of us genuinely seeing God. There's no hope for any of us becoming servants of the living God without knowing who he is. We think we can solve our own problems 
obviously with a little help from God. And this makes us think that we are sovereign and He is our servant. Only when we come to the end of ourselves are we ready to see God. The created beings that we are like to create, take credit for the work that is solely God's. And we build our trains, and we marvel at the wonders we created, and we rely on pride to make us right. We see that the God of the Bible as a means to serve us. We can make our God our good buddy, or a half-blind grandfather who says, that's okay, because we all have those. We just mess up. So much of our worship is ultimately about us and the good feelings that we get when we envision ourselves as awesome in the outburst of sudden emotionalism. We need a vision of the blazing holiness of God. We need to be crushed under the amazing holiness of a being that is greater than the entire known universe. The whole earth is full of his glory. To truly see God as holy, we need to humble ourselves and realize that he is the creator. We are the creature. He is sovereign. He is three times holy. He is the God of the universe, and we are from dust. Creatures created still with a specific purpose, to proclaim the holiness of God, and in doing so, display His glory. Now, in what ways do we proclaim His holiness? Give us the positive ways that we do this, Greg, because it's been kind of a downer, because I want us to see that we're not holy, right? God is holy. He is ultimate good. We are not, okay? So, the upside, right? Those who are in Christ are called saints. Yeah. Everyone who is in this room who is in Christ, you are a saint. You're Saint, you know, Kirsten's, you know, Saint Gregory right here. Um, this is not because we have a pure heart. It's because we have been set apart and been called to purity. Our problem is that as Christians, we are called to be holy even though we are not holy. So we, I, I demonstrated that I hope well, Um, and we have been called to a life that is different, a life that is set apart. The Christian life is a real life of nonconformity. Okay, okay. So in Romans 12, it tells us to deliver our bodies as a living sacrifice. And what does a living sacrifice look like? So Paul first describes this as nonconformity in the to not be conformed to this world. Nonconformity can be tricky, though because we can conform to nonconformity. Um, we do that all the time. Like, I am conforming to nonconformity. Like, uh, so, like, it may be showing my age, like the gothic kids, like in high school, you know, who always used to put, like, the black makeup on their eyes and stuff. I'm not doing that, but all of your friends look like that, too. So you're, like, nonconforming to conforming to your friends and nonconformity, and, and we do it all the time with styles, different things like that. And... It's not, the nonconformity that Paul is talking about here looks like transformation. It's probably a better way to say it. This nonconformity to transformation is a call 
to holiness. We're called to go beyond. We're called to rise above the structures of this world. And we don't follow the world's lead, but cut across it and rise above it. Christians who give themselves as living sacrifice and offer their worship in this way are people with a high standard for discipline. Christians like this are not satisfied with superficial forms of righteousness. As good old Sproul says, the saints are called to a rigorous pursuit of the kingdom of God. They are called to depth in their spiritual understanding. This transformation into becoming holy comes by gaining a new understanding of God, ourselves, and the world. You're being holy. Get this. You are being holy when you learn about God. You are becoming more holy in this moment as we learn about the holiness of God. That's awesome, right? You're being made holy when you hear a sermon. You're being made holy when you read the Bible. And we need to be conformed to Jesus. We need the mind of Christ, and we need to value the things that he values and despise the things that he despises. So, what are the things in your life that you know Jesus despises? What are the things that you know Jesus loves? When you are obedient, or obedient to Jesus, you're growing in holiness. You're growing in holiness by becoming and beholding the holiness of God. So, we can be holy in our stewardship. We can be holy in our time. We spend time in the Word. We spend time with other believers. We spend time getting things done to the glory of God. We can be holy. Money. Money is a resource for furthering God's kingdom. Every time we use it as such, we are growing in holiness. Emotions, when we honor God, when we view things the way that God views things, we can rejoice when he rejoices, and we can despise what he despises in our being. Why? Because we are being made more holy, and we can submit. We can humbly submit to him. We can submit to the commands that he gives us in Scripture, and we can walk in obedience to display his holiness to everyone. We can submit to our elders. We can submit to the people who God has equipped to pour into our lives. And we can submit to our spouses. We can lay down our life for our bride because we are displaying the holiness of God. We can know God in our Bibles, and we can know and be known by other people by being intentional about knowing them and being intentional about them knowing us. When we run to people who display the holiness of God, we are becoming more holy. As creatures, we can become holy in them. As creatures, Redeemed by Christ, we can grow in sanctification and holiness. Christ was our holiness for us. Jesus Christ incarnate as the God-man, crucified, risen, is at the center of history. The Gospel of John makes the connections for us more clearly, specifically John 12, and relating it to Isaiah because he quotes it a lot and he uh, if we continue in Isaiah 6, if we keep looking down to verse 10, uh, this 
He's saying, like God says, that this message that I proclaim to you will harden people. They don't, they don't want such a God, but the chapter also ends with a reference to a stump of faithfulness that remains, and Isaiah speaks of a holy seed. So in Isaiah 53, the seed is described as the suffering servant who had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, and that's Isaiah 53, 2 through 3. Just the opposite of the picture of the God we see in Isaiah 6. These are very two, the very two texts, the two opposing texts that John quotes in reference to the rejection of Jesus. So why? John tells us in Isaiah, well, he tells us Isaiah, quotes Isaiah, he says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Isaiah saw the glory of Christ. In other words, Jesus was the fulfillment of both the majesty of Isaiah 6 and the desperation that we see in Isaiah 53. And that, John says, is why he was rejected. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Why? Because Jesus was the glory of Isaiah 6 and the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. John said this in John uh, 12, 41. He says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And because they loved human glory more than divine glory, they rejected Jesus. The embodiment of the glory and holiness of God, both in his greatness as God and his lowliness as a suffering servant. But all of this was part of God's design. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. His rejection was the plan because his death was for sinners, was the ultimate plan. Christ died to make you at peace with you and God. He died to make you happy and to be your happiness. Piper says this, he says, the life that drinks most deeply in the gospel, unremitting pursuit of Jesus as your all-satisfying treasure, the life that drinks most deeply in the gospel has an unremitting pursuit of Jesus as your all-satisfying treasure. This is a dangerous quest to know him because it is a war with holiness. And it's, it's hard because if we don't see him as treasure, we will not be satisfied in him. The great work of the holy, holy, holy God through the death and resurrection of Jesus in which he destroys every obstacle to your joy and peace. And he comes to display his glory and joy in it, in your joy, in it. He removes every obstacle of peace that, that we could even think of. Jesus, the greatest obstacle he removed through his blood was the wrath of God. Jesus made us who were far off now close 
We are not alienated from God anymore because of Christ. Christ got rid of the obstacle of real guilt and real sin. The guilt and sin cannot be an obstacle to us who are in Christ because it can't be an obstacle to our joy and peace because it is done away with. And when we make it one, we say the gospel's inadequate. He gets rid of the absence of righteousness from our lives. And also, I, I, you know, I, I don't know if anybody's ever told you guys this before, but you're going to die. We're all going to die. And guess what? In Christ, in Christ, your peace and joy in Jesus, small as it is now, will never stop. Because when you die, it will continue for all eternity. Learning the depths and the riches of God's holiness forever and ever. Get rid of our spiritual deadness in our souls. As John Piper says, and I know I quote him a lot, but it's good. He says that taste buds change. When you have a relationship with Christ, your taste buds change. Our souls can taste the beauty of the holiness of God. Death, Satan has been defeated. That obstacle was removed by Christ. His holiness removed that. So have you experienced any of these things? Have you experienced the gospel? Yes, you have. If you realize that just the obstacles that he's removed are not the end game. That's not the end game, that he removes all these obstacles. The end game is Jesus. It's worshiping Jesus. It's loving Jesus. It's finding your joy in Jesus, in his holiness. Paul the for, very first worship leader he reflects on God's holiness in Romans 11. I like to read. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Here is our God. When God shows himself to be holy, what we see is glory. If we forsake the length of our train, on our robes and exchange it for Christ, we can have peace with God. Christ is our holiness. Christ is our holiness. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I, I thank you for this time that we got to be in your word and worship you. God, I pray that Whatever I said that was just super out there and crazy, just get rid of it. 
Only keep your word. Help us to remember how holy you are and how you have done such an amazing, great work in your son, Jesus Christ, that he can be our holiness, he can be our joy, he can be everything for us. God, you are so good. And I pray that we are just in awe of you more and more every day as we pursue holiness in your word and with others and in submission to your earthly authorities. And I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.